0: Um, when uh, John was uh, announcing the registration, tell me I wasn't the only one hoping that he would have a pen and a form and do the little dance thing he did on the video. No. It was my last week here for 12 weeks. You didn't indulge me. What's the story, man? Um, it's so good to be with you. I will genuinely miss um, being with you for a few months, um, but I'm looking forward to coming back and I'm um, looking forward to to resuming uh, next year when I come back will be kind of the beginning of the year, end of uh, January, and we'll launch into our vision for next year. It's gonna be an exciting year to come. Um, hands up if you filled in a census recently. Yeah, finally. How many of you did it on the day or before the actual due date? How many of you had to do it afterwards because of the big census fail? Okay, quite a few people. Um, you know that every, every census, there's gonna be that religion section. And for a number of censuses now, people write religions such as Jedi, yeah, which warms my heart even though it's a complete false religion, but um, it does warm my heart. Um, Now, Jedi might seem to be strange, but I I did a bit of a Google search on actually what are the strangest religions, and there are some that make the whole Jedi thing look tame. So, uh, let me tell you about one. Since about the 19th century, but particularly more, more so after World War II, around the Pacific Islands, developed uh, these strange religions they called cargo cults. Who's ever heard of cargo cults? I hadn't heard of them before, but it's really interesting. Russell has, because he's well-read. Um, but basically, why they're called cargo cults, well, especially during World War II, um, both the Japanese and allied forces would drop cargo, right? Supplies, resources, material stuff. And this is stuff that the natives of these islands would, would have never experienced ever before. So Manufactured clothing, uh, medicine, canned foods, tents, weapons. And and these would come in vast quantities, and particularly it's really for the soldiers. But then the soldiers would share it with the natives. And so the islanders suddenly got all this stuff they never experienced before, dropped out of the heavens. After the war, obviously, the cargo drops stopped. But then a religion started. See, they thought, the islanders thought, well, if if you do all the rituals that these soldiers from day to day do... Then maybe the heavens would open up again, and the cargo would come. Right. So what they would do is um, the, the islanders would p- perform parades, like you know the ground drills that soldiers would do, um, and they would either use salvaged old rifles or they make wooden carved rifles. Um, they would carve headphones from wood and wear these fake headphones while sitting in in fake control towers because they thought, you know, the, this is what the soldiers did, and then the cargo came. They wave landing signals while standing on the runways that were left behind or they would light fires and torches to set up runway lights, right? Because the thinking was, if we did this, the heavens would open and we'd get all this stuff again. Um, So this is real. I'm not making this up. One cult was called the John Frum cult in Vanuatu, right? They worshipped Americans um, by the names of John. I don't know if John Frum was really a person, um, but certainly this other person that they worshipped wasn't, Tom Navy. I thought they would have at least gone for like, you know, something cool, like, um, oh, what's that, just slipped my mind, um, oh, who's that guy who's in, like, uh, The Expendables, the really, uh, Chuck Norris, I mean, a Chuck Norris cult, I get, okay, but Tom Navy, I don't, but a really interesting one is one, one emerged, and it was called the Prince Philip cult, so have a look at this, uh, Prince Philip, literally, as in the, the husband of Queen Elizabeth II, there's a whole island that worships Prince Philip because he is somehow the bringing of good cargo. Now, it's hard for us, isn't it, to imagine uh, such strange religions, it's just not something that we relate to. And it's maybe also how we feel when we read about, I mean, in, in 1 Kings, we started last week, we looked at it again this week, Baal worship. Okay, worshiping the Baals and the Asherahs in the time of Elijah. If you weren't here last week, let me just give you a quick recap. We're in about the 9th century before Christ, about the 800s B.C., God's people, Israel, had turned away from him and have started worshipping the gods of the Canaanites, who were the inhabitants of the land before they got there, particularly Baal and Asherah. Now, Elijah was one of the very few true prophets of the Lord, and he came to declare God's judgment for the people's unfaithfulness. And remember last week, we looked at the big idea was that God, the Lord, Yahweh, their God, was the real king and not Ahab, right the evil king who led them astray to worship the Baal, it was the Lord, not Ahab, who was the real king. And this judgment involved a drought of three long years. That was last week. Now this week, chapter 18, is honestly, I'm so glad I get to preach on this just before I go on to leave, because this is one of the best and most exciting Old Testament stories. Big showdown, right, between the lonely prophet of Yahweh, Elijah, and 450 prophets of Baal. Well, 450 Baal prophets plus another 400 prophets of Asherah. So that's nearly a thousand other prophets. One versus a thousand. Now, just to forewarn you, I usually don't do this, but I'm going to use a few boxing illustrations today. You could probably tell from the whole showdown thing, please indulge me. This is my last week here for 12 weeks, okay? Boxing metaphors coming. Now, you might be thinking, why is Baal worship, as I said, so dominant? Why was it so, you know, enticing for people? It's a little bit like the John Frum cult. Like, why would anyone worship that? Well, let me give you four reasons why Baal worship would have been quite appealing. Number one, remember, it was state-enforced. It was law. Now, you don't want to get in trouble with the law. Ahab and his evil, wicked wife Jezebel made it law. That's one good reason. The second reason is tradition. You see, long before Israel came and conquered Canaan, the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, had worshipped Baal. So, I'll show you some archaeological finds that we've got. All right, so that's Baal, both of them, um, from before, b- around that time. Okay, so this is a traditional religion. This goes back longer than the worship of Yahweh at that region. So, you can understand, people are saying, we're connecting with our long roots. It's tradition. The third reason is prosperity. You see, Baal was the god of fertility and rain and fruitfulness and therefore grain and oil and wine. And this was an agricultural society. Baal could revive the dead, Baal could heal the sick, Baal could give children. Right? So you see, prosperity. Th- everyone has it, well, especially the people of that time, they had an itch that Baal worship could scratch. It's very appealing. But then the last reason, it's a bit surprising for some of you, the last reason is actually sex. That's right. You see, worship of fertility gods in the ancient world, and not just Baal, but Roman Greek gods, involved ritualized sex with holy prostitutes at their shrines. Right? So you get a bit bored of your, uh, your wife, your spouse, you just go to the ritual prostitutes, you could sleep with them, and you could put it down as worship. Happened a lot. See, this is no strange religion, right? This is not like Jediism, as much as I'm warming to Jediism, but this is no Jediism where one small fragment of the population put down that they are Jedi religion because they're 40-year-olds who live in mom's basement, right? It's not just that segment of people. We're talking about Baal. um, This Baal offered the ancient version of the good life. You can see that, can't you? It was very appealing to worship Baal. of course, no one today worships Baal, as far as we know. But you can see parallels, can't you? Because the God substitutes in our lives what the Bible would say, idols don't have to be made out of stone or wood. They don't even have to be personal. You think about what other God substitutes in our lives. Wealth, relationships, power, pleasure, careers, travel, think about what makes them appealing. We all have them, don't we? It's like Baal. They all offer our 21st century version of the good life, right? That's why they're appealing. So my hope today is 1 Kings 18 will be a showdown, not just between the Lord God and Baal, but will be a showdown between the Lord God, the real God, and our Baals, our idols. It's about to get exciting. I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into it. Let's pray. Father God, please help us. Help us have a really big, big picture of you as a result of this incredible chapter of the Bible. Help us to exclaim with Israel at the end that we will worship and serve only you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, the events of this chapter come in three parts. You can see on the outlines you got in the bulletins. Uh, so preparation, confrontation, resolution. Firstly, let's go preparation. Um, the first 19 verses that John read for us, that's really the preparation. These, This is the lead up to the actual fight. Now, here we're introduced to a new character, Obadiah, and how he gets involved in setting up the showdown. I wish we had more time to look at Obadiah because he really does deserve, I think, almost a sermon on his own. He is he's actually one of those quiet figures that will come here and you'll disappear and you won't hear of him ever again in the Bible. But I think we, we should rightly honor people like him. Because as we read before, right, he's, um, verse 3, he's, he's like um, Ahab's palace admin manager. So he's like the general manager of, of, of Ahab's um, palace. But he fears God. He serves the true God. At great risk to himself, look what he does. A hundred prophets, he hides them. He feeds them. It's a little bit like, if you know the story, Corrie ten Boom, um, their family during World War II hiding Jews in the book called The Hiding Place. right, Ahab just cares about saving animals. Obadiah cares about saving lives. Uh, He bumps into Elijah, and now he has to play the role of Don King. Sorry, I I did say I'm going to have boxing metaphors. Most of you have no idea who Don King is, but back in the day when Muhammad Ali and boxing was huge, he was the fight promoter right? Guy with crazy hair. Um, He has to be the Don King. Only Don King got rich for promoting Muhammad Ali and setting up fights for Muhammad Ali. Obadiah is not going to get rich. He could die, all right? He gets pushed into that role. He risks his own neck in order to set up this showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, all right? Uh, Again, that's all I'm going to say about it because the main point I'm going to come at it is that this is just all preparation, this is all preparation. Now, why is it that we've gone to the stage where there needs to be a big showdown? Right at the beginning of this chapter, God had said to Elijah, I'm about to bring rain. So why, why this first? Well, remember, we had three years of terrible drought. Now, rain's about to happen. But you remember what this, the lesson of the drought was. Baal was a fertility god, yeah? How do you think Baal is looking these three years on in the eyes of the people? Not so good, Yeah right, this Baal that they've been praying to for three years to bring rain, nothing's happened. You bet the Israelites are now regretting changing gods. But you see, it's not enough. Before Yahweh brings rain and it's settled once and for all, there's one more big showdown needed to cement the Lord's supremacy. So this is a little bit like, warning, another boxing metaphor, it's a little bit like the rumble in the jungle fight between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. I don't know if you guys know anything about boxing. I think most of you have these blank looks in your eyes, so you probably don't. I don't know too much about boxing, but I've watched the Ali movie with Will Smith, so I know enough. Um, But let me just give you a bit of a history lesson. Muhammad Ali, you have heard of Muhammad Ali, right? The greatest boxer who ever lived, okay? Ali had defeated the former heavyweight champion Joe Frazier by winning two out of three very famous bouts, fights. But you see, George Foreman, right... That's Ali, that's Foreman. George Foreman had, during this time, had already taken the heavyweight title off Frazier. So when Ali fought Frazier for the last time and won, he didn't become heavyweight champion again because George Foreman was heavyweight champion, yeah? So you see, even though Ali was already considered pretty amazing because he beat Joe Frazier, who used to be heavyweight champion, until Ali faced off against George Foreman, who was the current heavyweight champion there will still be a lingering doubt as to whether he was the greatest of all time. And so, in 1974, before I was even born, see, I'm not that old, um, they set up this fight. It was called the Rumble in the Jungle. It was in Africa, it was in Zaire. And Ali, it was a 15-round fight, but Ali took eight rounds and knocked George Foreman out and pretty much cemented his name as the greatest fighter who ever lived. Okay, that's the reason why we needed a showdown set up. So there'll be no doubt, absolutely no doubt in anyone's mind that Yahweh, the Lord, the true God was the greatest. So the last few verses, let me read again. Verse 19, Elijah's talking to Ahab and he says, Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. We're about to have the showdown. So point number two, confrontation. What I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you, if you want to, don't actually follow the passage as I read it. Sometimes it's more interesting if you're just listening. I'll read it the best way I can because I think a lot of of this chapter, you just have to read it and hear it read and you get the excitement of it. Okay, so you can follow it if you want, if that helps you. But if you want to just listen you might be able to visualize it a bit more. So I'm just going to read this next bit and let's get into it because it's pretty exciting stuff. So ding, 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 let's go. Verse 21, Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves, and let him cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He Is God. Then all the people said, What you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but don't light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted there was no response no one answered and they danced around the altar they had made at noon elijah began to taunt them shout louder he said surely he's a god oh perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened so they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. It's meant to be exciting. It's meant to be funny too, isn't it? It's actually really amusing. Now, before we see the resolution... I don't know you're hanging out for it. I just want to uh, note a few things. See, the, the whole setup itself, okay? The whole setup is trying to demonstrate some key things. And I want to mention three. It's trying to show us the real God, the Lord, or Yahweh, the Lord, right? What He's like versus Baal. So let me tell you three things. And it's on your outlines under point two. The real God is firstly not confined by geography. Do you see why choose Mount Carmel. Why Mount Carmel? Let me tell you why. Carmel was a big, prominent, hilly range that goes for some 17 kilometers. It's quite a big mountain range or hill range. The ancient Egyptian records from the second millennium BC, so about a thousand years before this, Egyptian records mentioned Carmel as the holy head. In other words, Carmel, even, you know, a thousand years before was a sanctuary, a place of worship, way back now in Assyrian another ancient organi- uh, uh, civilization in Assyrian annals from the time of Elijah it's around the same time we find archaeologically Assyria mentions Carmel as the mountain of Baal right in other words Carmel was Baal's home court home court advantage if you do any sport you'll know that's a big deal Just to let you know, our poor wallabies, I'm not talking about the animals, I'm talking about our rugby union team, our poor wallabies have not won in New Zealand against New Zealand for 15 years. That's older than some people here. That's how bad we are at rugby union nowadays. I remember the 90s. We were actually good then. But home court advantage is a huge thing, right? It's very hard to beat New Zealand in New Zealand. Elijah's saying, you can have home court advantage, guys. It doesn't matter in this battle, Baal, home court advantage, whatever, because Yahweh is not confined by geography. Second thing, the real God is not manipulated by activity. This is where the humor is heaviest, isn't it? I mean, Elijah, right, fighting words. I love it. He's taunting them. He's making fun of them. He's having a go at Baal. You see, gods of those cultures were not only confined to geography, right? Certain places they were active in, certain places they weren't. They were also a lot like people in general, which is also how you can tell they're not real gods, okay? Whenever your god is just like a bigger version of you, it's probably not real, right? So, um, these gods were not omnipotent. They couldn't do everything. Like humans, they also found it hard to, well, maybe like human males, they also found it hard to multitask, all right? So, Elijah's saying Baal might be occupied, he might be doing something else, and that's why he hasn't shown up. Um, that verse where he says, maybe Baal is busy, there's actually a little bit of subtle humor because busy, in the original, could mean maybe he's gone to the toilet. So Elijah's saying, maybe Baal can't answer you because he's doing a poo. Did I just say that out loud? I did. Okay. Um, or maybe he's gone on a journey and he's not around. Now, that's interesting because we have an ancient, uh, um, another ancient um, civilization called the Ugaritic Um they had a uh, they had a, a document about Baal uh, about Baal's sister coming to Baal's house because they lived in houses they coming to Baal's house looking for Baal but Baal's out hunting cuz he was on a journey and so he wasn't around so maybe that's what Elijah was saying maybe he's in the toilet he's on the can he's a little bit constipated or maybe he's gone out to get some Metamucil. i don't know um, but you see no matter what the prophets of Baal are doing in their strange and even kind of disturbing frenzy, the liturgical frenzy, right? You see the point, don't you? Verse 29, there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Nothing happens. Silence. Now, we'll see in a moment that what Elijah does, it's worlds apart, right? Not a frenzy of religious activity or ritual. Elijah will just pray. We'll see that in a moment because the real God is not manipulated by religious activity, you see? It's an important point. Now, it may seem a little bit foreign to us to make this point, but I reckon this is something we do have to sit with for a little while because this is alive and well. You see, it's so easy to think that God, the real God even, can be manipulated, or maybe that's too strong a word. Let's use the word accessed, okay? can be accessed by certain rituals. See, now we're talking. Now we're on familiar ground, aren't we? How would you complete this sentence? God will surely work if we, or if I. How would you complete that sentence? God will surely bless me if I. How would you complete that? Surely if I prayed more and read the Bible more and did my quiet times more regularly. Or maybe if I did more ministry at church. Or maybe if I used that evangelism or church growth strategy. Maybe if we used that worship music or worship style or those instruments. or I don't know, how would you complete that sentence? There's, um, there's a Christian satire site. I don't know if you've seen it. It's on Facebook. It's one of my feeds. It's called Babylon B. Great, really funny Christian satire. Um, they've had a few articles. Let me just read out the headlines Power of God waits in foyer until chorus of Holy Spirit. Correlation found between conversions to Christ and smooth song transitions. Holy Spirit unable to move through congregation as fog machine breaks. I mean, they're making fun of, uh, you know, uh, you know what they're making fun of. They're making fun of our very music-centered, performance-centered worship culture of our churches, which in and of itself can be really helpful things. But don't you see that sometimes, maybe often, we think that if we have this certain worship style, if the keyboards played the pads at the time that we're praying, then somehow God is moving more. And unless we did it this way, the Holy Spirit can't come. Do you see we do this, don't we? These are all good things, but God cannot be manipulated, you see. Or perhaps a much more subtle form of bargaining happens between you and God when suffering comes. Have you ever thought this? Something bad happens. You go through a period of really bad stuff. And in your mind, you're thinking, God, I've learned my lesson. All things happen for the good of those who love him. So I've learned my lessons for my good. I've grown, God. I have grown through this suffering. I can genuinely see I've learned my lesson. I've grown. I've changed. So why haven't I received breakthrough yet? Ah, you've thought that too, haven't you? Because I've changed, because I've grown, God, now you owe me the change in my circumstances. I've learned to be content, single, so where is my boyfriend? I've learned to be content with unemployment and live with, so where is my employment? Do you see? Now, it may be that God will give you breakthrough. But us learning, us reaching some milestone, us hitting and ticking a box does not put God in our debt because God cannot be manipulated by what we do, even by how we grow, even by what we learn. The third thing we learn about the real God, that he has no limits to power. Baal is not omnipotent. Yahweh is. Let me keep reading. and You can just listen if you want. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seers of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. Uh, It doesn't take a genius, does it, to see that Elijah might be just a little bit sabotaging his chances of winning this bout, yeah? I mean, it's like going into the boxing ring with your hands tied behind your back and saying, okay, I'm ready now. But you see what all this is trying to demonstrate, yeah? Yeah how much greater the real God is, the God who has no limitations to power. So, my final point, resolution, and let's read the rest of it, or let's hear the rest of it read out. gets good now. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell, and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. There's a resolution. Again, I want to point out three things we learn about the real God. Firstly, He's a God of promise. Remember, I said the real God is not manipulated by fancy rituals or religious frenzy. He's not even manipulated by our zeal or our growth. Just because you're sincere, it doesn't mean that God will listen. So that begs the question, how does God respond? When would God respond? How? Well, simply is he responds to his covenant, his promises. You see how Elijah, he's appealing to God not based on their worthiness, not even based on his worthiness as a prophet. He knows God can only be moved, not by something in us, but by something in Him. He appeals to God's faithfulness, you see. So that's why in verse 31, He repairs the altar. But look at the symbolism, 12 stones. There are 12 tribes of Israel. He's saying, God, remember your covenant people, the people you formed and promised, and said on oath that would be your people forever. You made promises to them. We Come on that basis. And then in verse 36, you see his prayer. He says, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. In other words, God of the covenant. God who never revokes his promises. Remember, God, your promises. You see, why did God provide us on this side of the uh, millennia? Why did God provide Jesus? our Savior. Why did He give us Jesus so many Christmases ago? The same reason. Not because of worthiness in us. Not like God said, oh, these people, they're so wonderful, I've got to save them. Not because of anything in us. He provides Jesus for us for the same reason, because of His promises. Right? There is an Old Testament before there is a New Testament. Jesus stands as the fulfillment of all of God's promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Israel. You see, if not for His promises, He would not have sent the Savior. Secondly, He's a God of grace. You see, when fire falls from heaven and consumes the sacrifice of the altar, something really, really significant happened. This is not just a cool bit of pyrotechnics. Okay, I mean that's cool. But let me explain the significance of it. You see, in the Old Testament, fire from heaven that consumes burnt offerings only happens three other times. Only three other times in the whole of the Bible. First time in Leviticus. Right, we've just looked at Leviticus, so it should be a little bit familiar. When the fire came from heaven, it shows that God was pleased with their special tent or the tabernacle. Where? Where he promises to be, his people, uh, be with his people, where he set up the priesthood and all the sacrifices. When they offered the sacrifices, fire from heaven came down to say, yes, I'm pleased with it. The other two times that happens is in the book of 1 Chronicles, and both of them had to do with a new place where the temple was to be built or the temple had just been built. Two different times, one before, one after the temple. Right, there are only three, three other times fire from heaven comes down for sacrifice. Why is that significant? Each time, fire from heaven confirms that God had accepted His people's sacrifice. And they were not just random places. Each other time, it was at the very place where God had promised to dwell and relate to His people. Either the tent of meeting, tabernacle, or later on, the temple. You see, when fire comes down from heaven here, God is saying... I am pleased to be with you. I am satisfied that your sin will not stand in the way of me being with you because this animal has died in your place and I accept its sacrifice. Now, you bring it back to Elijah's day and don't you see what an act of grace this is? Remember, this whole nation had turned against God to worship Baal. The betrayal is, in the Old Testament terms, it's like adultery. It's like a husband cheating on his wife with another lover, or a wife cheating on her husband with another lover. You're breaking faith with the exclusive marriage covenant between God and His people. That's what worship of Baal was. It's the most hurtful kind of adultery. But God is still saying, you have a way back to me. There is a way where your sins can be wiped out in spite of what you've done. There is a way back for me to be your God still and dwell with you again. And you see, that way is through an acceptable act of worship. Sacrifice. The animal dies in your place on that altar. We looked at that in Leviticus, right? Every single altar had to do with sin, was about substitution. That animal I will accept in your place for your sins. That's grace, is it not? You see, we have that way too, don't we? See, no matter what you've done, you can have your sins wiped clean. You can have God dwell with you in your heart. And you can one day dwell with Him forever in the new creation. See, God provided a Savior, Jesus, who was also the perfect sacrifice, yeah? So you see, it's not about religion, not about zeal, not about trips to the confessional booth, not about doing good deeds. None of that activity can turn God towards you. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus brings us God's forgiveness and favor. Never forget that. And finally, a God who demands allegiance. See, verse 40, that last verse is a bit jarring, is it not? I right, 450 prophets of Baal slaughtered. That's how the story ends. You kind of wanted to finish the verse before, right? Now, this is not the place for me to give a full defense for why it happens. I just want to say three quick things. One, this is not applicable to how God deals with false religions and false prophets now. All right? This is not the death sentence. It's not the way that it happens, okay? Number two. Remember, this is really a war. I mean, okay, I've been using boxing metaphors, but this is not a boxing match. This is more like war. In war, unrepentant enemies face the most serious of serious forms of punishment, do they not? I'm not talking about surrender. They don't surrender. When they don't surrender, they get killed. Number three, Baal worship, you've got to think of it, was like a cancer. You do not treat cancer by keeping a few tumors around because they're kind of the prettier tumors, right? And you get rid of it. And the priests of Baal were the tumors. But the big point made here, I hope you can see, throughout this chapter is the one of allegiance. Where is your allegiance? Remember, even during the setup phase, verse 21, Elijah saying to the people, how long will you waver, literally, how long will you limp between two opinions? how long will you limp around, not deciding? If the Lord is God, notice this, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. Now, that follow bit is important because when the real God shows up, it is not for us to say, oh, that's nice. eh? Yeah, the God of the Bible, he does make more sense intellectually than my former atheism or agnosticism. Now, the other religions, yeah, I, I think the God of the Bible, Jesus seems to be, you know, a bit higher than that that's nice. I'm just going to get on with my own life, but that's nice. Do you see, if the Lord is God, what do you do? Follow Him. If Jesus is who He says it is, not just for us to think, oh, that's a nice. No, you follow Him. You see, God is not someone you keep around when it's convenient for you. If He is real, then He demands everything, all of my worship, all of my life, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, if you're a Christian, then I I, I I take that you know this. But this is a good occasion, is it not? For me to ask you, whether you have, whether we have, in our pursuit of the good life, have we let other gods take the place of the true and living God? Have you sidelined Jesus He's still there, but he's in that compartment somewhere out of the way. Pray to him when I need him because it's HSC. After that, put him back. Or do we put fences around the areas of our lives? Jesus, everything else, just don't touch that part. It's mine. Can't go there. 1 Kings 18. God is no plaything, is he? Yes, God is loving. As we've seen, God is gracious. God is faithful. God is a consuming fire. Believe me, those God substitutes in our lives, they will be shown up like Baal. Each one shown up for the frauds they really are. And you put your boyfriend, your girlfriend, even your husband and wife or your kids, you put your career, your comfort, your house, your car, your money, your hobbies, your retirement, your pleasure first. And let me tell you, they will all crumble. They will all fail you, whether in this life or if not in this life. They will fail you when the real God shows up on judgment day. Do not buy the lie. The real God, the real Lord, the real master is Jesus, who died for you, who was raised in glory, who is seated in heaven, who is coming back to be your judge. So today, Give him your complete allegiance. Today say with Israel, I have no other gods. The Lord, the Lord Jesus, He is God, and I will follow him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, by your spirit stir in us such a sense of the gravity of your m- worth and majesty that we will surrender everything. Lord, you know who you're speaking to particularly today. You know who here really have struggled, maybe have loosed, are losing or have lost their battle with the God substitutes in their lives. You know who you need to minister to, so please do that. Don't let us walk away limping still between two opinions help us decide today if jesus you are god then we will follow you i pray because only you can do that work in our hearts amen uh, our god is a powerful god is not manipulated by what we do but is one that is faithful to his promises is a god of grace we can see that in jesus and now he demands our entire lives, and our allegiance is to Him, to follow Him. Uh, we now have a chance to respond um, to the message that we've heard, and we can do so in two ways. Um, the first is by singing, and we'll be doing that shortly. Um, and another way that we can respond is also by giving. Um, but keep in mind, this is only for the regulars of our church, for the church partners. Um, so if you're new here or if you're just visiting, um, please don't feel any obligation to give. But if you filled out the contact card, on the back page of your bulletin, just rip that off and drop that into the bags as they're passed around. I don't want to stand and sing the next song, Behold Our God.